Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed our uh, little minor spell of cold weather. Uh, it's, it's summer again. If you didn't know, it was like 90s this last week. Um, I, I don't know why we don't get more cold, but it's been, it's been making me just reminisce of the days when I lived up in the mountains where it actually got cold. Uh, and I, I just was thinking about my favorite day of the school year, and I'm wondering if you guys could guess what it is. What do you think my favorite day of the school year was? Snow day, right? If you guys don't know what that is, it's a day where this white stuff, it's called snow, that comes down, it's cold, it covers the ground, yeah. So we used to have snow days um, all the time, and, and I loved snow days as a kid growing up in the mountains because it was the only day I was excited to wake up uh, early, and um, it, it was this total experience of joy where you'd get up and you would just immediately start putting all of your snow gear on, like 20 layers, because I'm out there from like 7 a.m. until like 4 p.m., right, until it gets dark, right? Just out there all day playing in the snow. And you would have to be completely bundled up because if you weren't, you'd like freeze to death because I didn't come in. I would just, I wouldn't even drink water. I'd just eat the snow, you know? i just out there all day. And then when you came in, it was like this total change of experience because like the fire was on in the house and you would come in and you would immediately just start sweating. So you'd take off all those clothes because it was so warm in there. And so it was making me think like, you know, you need to dress appropriate for the weather, right? Like, it wouldn't make any sense to go outside in, in your pajamas in the middle of a snowstorm, and it wouldn't make any sense to be wearing all that gear inside because we dress appropriately for the weather, right? Well, that simple principle of putting on clothing, putting on what is necessary in the situation and circumstance is also a spiritual principle for us as well, right? Now, think about this. Before Christ, we walked in a pattern of life that was consistent with our nature. We put on actions and a lifestyle consistent with our nature, which was sinful. But now in Christ, we've been washed white as snow, right? We must shed those useless garments that don't do a sufficient job of covering us, and we must live in consistency with the new nature that has been given to us in Christ, We've been given these new affections, these new, these new thoughts, and these new actions that we're to live in consistently with the new nature that we've been given, with the change that's taken place. But how do we, as a body of believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, live consistently within that nature? How do we live consistently within that nature that Christ has given to us? And that's what we're going to talk today about in our passage. So if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3... Starting in verse 1. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to go 1 through 11. God has this for us this morning to say from his word. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside... Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us and corrects us and helps us to live lives that are honoring to you, Lord. Help us to understand how we are to live a consistent life with the new nature you've given us, Lord. Not following the old self, but putting on the new self. We ask for your provision and for your spirit to work within us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys have ever made like a, a New Year's resolution that you're going to get in the gym more? You guys ever done that? How'd that go for you? I, I tell myself like every year, I'm like, I'm going to get into the gym this year, and I'm going to do it before I go to work, right? I'm going to like get up early, I'm going to get to the gym, I'm going to work out, and then I'm going to still be able to get to work on time and have my day, right? I, I'm not sure about you guys, but that lasts about two weeks for me. Um, and after about two weeks, I start, I start just feeling like that pillow is softer than it has ever been, right? It's never felt that good. My bed has never been so warm and cozy after those two weeks, right? For me, it feels like there's like two people inside of me, right? So on the one side, there's like this really ripped buff me, right? That, that like has like all this motivation and discipline to like get up early and get in the gym and pump the iron, right? And then on the other side, there's this like kind of lazy me that just wants to wake up slowly, kind of just sit in my favorite chair and just sip my coffee all morning, right? And those two people, they don't agree with each other, okay? One wants one thing, the other wants another thing, and they fight at each other and usually... <laughs> The lazy one wins, right? Does anybody else ever feel like that? Like there's these two people inside of you? Well, if you, if you have, we're actually in good company, right? Because the Apostle Paul also felt this way. Now, he didn't feel this way maybe in regard to physical fitness, but he thought this way in terms of his spiritual health and well-being, right? That there is these two people inside of him raging war. I want you guys to look on the screen. I'm going to read this from Romans 7. It's a well-known passage, but I think it's important to, to, to understand what's being said here as a context for our passage today. Romans 7 says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself through the law of God with my mind but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You guys ever think about this? The Apostle Paul, the one who saw a vision of the resurrected, glorified Jesus, giving him the commission to go and preach to the Jews and the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul who wrote half of the New Testament, is saying that there is a war that rages inside of him. The things that he does not want to do, he does those things. 
And the things that he wants to do, he not only doesn't do them, he can't do them. What Paul is talking about here is his natural state. Paul, just like us, by nature, is a sinner. His nature, no matter how hard he tries, is unable to attain to the righteous standard, the righteous requirement that is required by God because his nature is corrupt. This is a foundational point. This understanding of, of our nature is foundational to this passage we have today in Colossians. We need to understand, first and foremost, that we as a people possess a fallen nature. We possess a fallen nature. Now, to clarify, I want to I just clarify what we mean by nature. What does that word nature mean? What do we mean when we say that? Does anybody remember in school having to write uh, that paper? I feel like everybody had to write this at some point in their school years, college or, or beforehand, on the topic, is man inherently good or bad? You guys remember having to write that? That's a question of the natural state of man. Is man inherently good or bad? The nature of man. When I say nature, what I mean is that which makes mankind what it is. Right? That which makes mankind what it is. It directs our being, our thoughts, our desires, our actions. Or, or, or maybe another way of saying it is that our nature is what defines us and limits us. Right? We can only act within our nature, and we cannot act outside of our nature. For instance, humans tend to be defined as an intelligent species, all right, in comparison to the rest of mammals. Now, you could debate that, depending on which TV shows and news channel you watch, but humans tend to be said as an intelligent species. Humans, by nature, have the ability and capacity for rational thought. We can have thoughts about our thoughts, Other creatures can't do that. That defines who we are to some degree. By nature, we are rational. Birds, on the other hand, by nature, have the ability and the capacity for flight. While humans, by nature, are limited in that area. We cannot choose, after church today, to step outside and fly to our lunch destination by flapping our wings. Because we are limited by our nature. So our nature is what defines us. Our nature informs who we are, what we can do, and what we can't do. So scripturally, there's one real big thing that defines our nature as human beings. One big thing that defines us beyond anything else, the defining characteristic of human nature is that we are made in the image of God, right? That's a huge defining characteristic of our nature. This is no small thing, you guys, no small thing at all. This one point literally defines our value and our worth and our identity, just in that one point alone. And I want you to think about it. What does the world say that we are by nature? What does the world say that we are? They say we're not made in the image of God, since the world does not believe that God exists or can exist, because all that there is in the world is just a bunch of space dust. Only the physical exists. Only the material exists. The prevailing thought of the world is that nothing exists except that which is made up of matter. Which means that you and I are not, by nature, made in the image of God, according to the world. We're just space dust. Just like a dog is space dust, and a table is space dust, and a taco is space dust. It's all space dust. There's no difference. We're just arranged in a unique situation. So according to the world, we're not made in the image of 
of God, we're made in the same image as everything else that exists. Nothing special about us. According to the world, we're not descended from Adam as a unique creation from God. We are just Adams. That's all we are. But we know as believers that that's not true. We know that the human, human race, human nature is unique. We are created by God in his image for a specific purpose. We're made for a relationship with the creator of the universe. We're made to love one another, love God, and worship him. That's what we're made for. Living out our days in everlasting joy just by being in his presence. That's our purpose in life. And so, yes, we're, we're, we have a unique nature. We're made in the image of God to, re, to reflect God and to be in relationship with God. But there is an issue to that. The issue is that we possess a fallen nature. At the very moment of Adam and Eve's sin, our nature became corrupted. Right? Instead of our thoughts, our affections, our, our wills, our actions being inclined toward God, they turned inward. The center of the universe stopped being God and became us. What was very good at the moment of creation became bad. As sin entered the world, so did the corruption of our nature. Yes, we're still made in the image of God, but we now also have a sinful nature. Our inclination is always towards sin. And we are unable to fulfill our true purpose because of the corruption of our nature. We now have no ability to fulfill our purpose because our nature is corrupted. If you've ever felt that that big gaping void in your life, it's almost inescapably because of this. This, The search for meaning in in life has been inherent in, in all of human history. The search for meaning. Because we are inherently not fulfilling our purpose because we are incapable of doing so because of the corruption of our nature. We're limited by our nature because of the corruption that has occurred through the fall because of sin. But for us, hope is to be had, because yes, we possess nature in the image of God, and yes, it is fallen, but in Christ, we are given a new nature. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Yes, we possess a fallen nature in Christ, but we are also given a restored nature. Right? Our hearts of stone have been turned into hearts of flesh. Through the work of Christ on the cross, the stain of sin has been covered. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, we're now given new life, and that life is in Christ. We're united with him in his death. We're united with him in his life. Our nature is now restored in his image. We can now fulfill, in part, the purpose that God has intended for us. We are now able to seek after God, to talk with him, to walk with him, like we're intended to do, not fully, not yet, but in part. Because we're not yet perfect, right? Our restored nature exists simultaneously with our corrupted nature. Until we are glorified and completely made new. So the old self remains while the the new person is there. And the old self still tries to come out. The power of the old self, the old nature, is diminished. It now no longer has power and authority over you. But it's still trying to gain control. So this is what this looked like, church. 
This is what this looks like. If you've repented of your sins, if you've turned away from your former pattern of life, if you've died to yourself and have turned to Jesus to live for him, you are new. That's what it says. The old things have passed away and they have died and the new has come. But the new nature is still present with the old nature. And those two natures wage war inside of you for power and control. And in Christ, through the indwelling of the Spirit, we can, we can and we will see that new nature completed in the end. But in the meantime, while we await that glorious day, that glorious day which is our hope, we must choose and act and live in accordance with our new nature. Our nature has been restored, but we also need it to be continually renewed. And this is what we're being commanded to do in this passage. One of the things that we're, we're told is made new is our affections. Our affections have been made new. Now we can have affection for God. If you've been made new in your affections, you need to continually renew your affections. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This, this word here, to seek, this doesn't just mean like look towards. It doesn't just mean look at, right? It means to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. That's what it means. To seek is to devote serious effort, to strive for, to try to obtain the thing that you desire most. It means intense desire. That's the word that we're supposed to seek the things above where Christ is. Biblically, we're told to seek the kingdom in this way. We're told to seek after it like it's a treasure of immense value, that we forsake everything else and go after that treasure. We're told to seek after it like we would if you lost the thing you love most in this world. That's the desire you're supposed to have towards Christ. If you guys are a parent, uh, I'm sure you've all had an experience like this where you've lost a child in public. You guys ever experienced this, right? right? This happened to Kelly and I like just a month ago or so. We were eating... Uh, dinner with my brother and sister-in-law at the packing house in Anaheim, and we're just eating, and the girls, my, my two girls, Allie and Emmy, um, they're just kind of playing around the table, and Kelly and I are keeping an eye on them the whole time. We're just kind of keeping an eye, and then it seems like out of nowhere, Emmy is just gone, right? We just, we can't see her anywhere. We call her name. She doesn't respond. She is just gone. In that moment, Kelly and I became the most incredible seekers you've ever seen in your life. I jumped up out of my seat, ran up the stairs towards the exit, got the security guard, was looking around for her. My brother and sister-in-law, they went to the other exits, and Kelly just started screaming Emmy's name until we found her. And she, of course, she's okay. She was behind in the bench right behind us, hiding underneath the bench. She decided with her sister to play hide-and-seek in public. Uh, great idea. Uh, so now there's new, a new Atterbury rule, no hide-and-seek in public, right? Which you would think would be obvious, but it's not. So when Paul says, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, what he's saying is that we're to daily hold fast to Christ as the sinner and the source of all of our joys. Our affections are to be fixed on the person of Jesus Christ. And we're to seek after him with such intense desire. Think about it as, if if the one thing you love most is lost, what do you do? You seek after it. That's how we are to seek after Christ if our affections are for him. We desire to be with him because we love him. 
If you've been raised with him, this passage says, seek him. If you've been made new, love him. If you've been given new life in him, do everything in your power to, to be with him. So in Christ, we're given new affections. We love and keep him first. We must also continually renew our affections by seeking after him, keeping him first in our hearts. And in this sense, our personal relationship with Christ is the driving factor for us to live within our new nature. So we must have affections that are oriented towards Christ and renewed in Christ, but we also need to have renewed minds. Not just our affections, but our minds. Because where your heart is, there your thoughts will be also. Right? Think about this for a minute. If you love something, you think about it, right? I'm sure none of, some of you in here have not thought, heard anything I've said because you love baseball so much, that's all you're thinking about. right? If you love donuts, you find yourself thinking about donuts. I watched a video about donuts. I know that sounds weird. I watched a video about donuts earlier in this week. I've been thinking about eating a Krispy Kreme all week, all right? If I love something, I think about it. What does not make sense is if you say you love your spouse, but you spend all day thinking about other women or other men. Because where your heart is, your mind should be also. Look at verses 2 through 4. It says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We should have our affections set on Christ, and we should have our minds set on Christ and not on the things of this earth. Now, what does that phrase mean, the things of this earth? What does it mean to have your minds not set on the things of this earth? Does it mean that we're to just stop thinking about everything that's going on in this world? That we're just to disconnect and just live in total anticipation of the life to come? It does not. Right? This does not mean that we're to forsake everything in this life and just focus on the things of the life to come. If that were the case, Christians could not be part of the world. Right? We'd be so disassociated and disconnected. We'd just live disconnected lives and we'd be completely ineffective. We must think about food and clothing and shelter and family and money and all those things because we are here still. Yes, we trust God for those things, but, but we still do have to think about them. It would make us a silly and foolish Christian to just forsake all worldly things. No, what is meant by the things of this earth are the sinful thoughts that are associated with the corrupt sinful nature. Those are the things that we are not to focus our minds on. We must fix our thought life on and around the things of Christ and not on sin. If we set our minds on the glory and splendor of Christ, if we meditate in his word, keeping it hidden within our hearts, if we dedicate our minds to study, if when we're having idle conversation, we try to always point back to Jesus and keep our minds focused on him, then our relationship with God, we're, we're likely to, to act according to those thoughts, right? If we're constantly thinking of God, we're likely to act according to those thoughts. But if we let our minds be dragged into contemplation about sin, giving in to sinful emotions and fears and thoughts, if we let our minds linger too long on those things, let our minds linger in the gutter, 
We'll be prone not to righteousness, but to sin. Because what we love, we think about, and what we think about, we do. Which leads us to the next set of verses, verses 5 through 9. And our next point. We must also, on top of having renewed affections and a renewed mind, have a renewed will. In verses 5 through 9 it says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once walked when you were living in them, but now you also must put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. We've transitioned now from from affections and thoughts into, into actions. The old nature, the corrupt sinful nature, the nature that was present in you before you came to Christ, before you received the new nature, that old nature had a specific pattern of living, right? The actions of your old life were consistent with your old nature. And in them you once walked. In, you were once living in them. But now that we're given a new nature, we need to walk in our new nature. We need to live out our new nature. And how do we do that? How do we begin to live in our new nature? Well, Paul tells us very clearly the first step to this. He tells us in verse 5, it says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Okay? As dead. Now, this is a weird verse in the original Greek. There's, there's some interesting things going on here. It's, it's, it's probably better translated a different way because this is a command, right? This is a command. So I actually like the way that some other translations do this. The ESV says, uh, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The NIV actually says it this way, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's what this is saying. This is a command for us to put to death the sinful nature and the actions of the sinful nature inside of us. To actively kill it. So how do we live consistently within our new nature? Well, first, we must kill sin. We must put it to death, put it aside, lay it aside, put it off, or the way that this is talked about. Which means we're not, allow, we're not to allow patterns of sin in our lives to remain. Because those patterns are not consistent with the new nature. They must be removed from us, literally killed, Right? Have you guys ever met those really weird um, people that don't kill spiders when they find them in their house, right? Like those people that get a piece of paper and like grab the spider and take it outside. Now, if you're one of those people, do not identify yourself because you will be judged. Not, not by God, by me, okay? I will judge you. Because you know what needs to happen to those little instruments of the devil? Death. That's what needs to happen, all right? Death needs to happen to those things, all right? Church, sin is an instrument of death. We need to think of it that way. The consequence of sin is death. The desire of the enemy is to lead us into sin because sin causes physical and spiritual death, separation from the body and from our Father. Now, to be honest, this is really confused in our minds because in our experience of sin, not in our knowledge of sin, but in our experience of sin, sin feels like it imparts life. When anxiety arises in our lives, 
when fear and doubt arise, when, when pain is present, emotional or physical pain, finishing that bottle in the cupboard feels like life. Clicking on that forbidden image or video feels like life. Giving into your anger to the point where you put someone down and elevate yourself above them, it feels life-giving. It puts us in the seat of power and control, and it gives us this high that then we feed off of, and it feels like life. But sin, while it has the appearance or the experience of life sometimes, it is only an instrument of death. That's all that it is. That recognition is important for us to understand, and it should have obvious consequences. If you, you don't keep something in your life that can and will kill you, right? You get rid of it. You cast it off. You put it to death. It's literally a case of kill or be killed, sin in your life. This has reminded me of something that happened up in, up in Lake Arrowhead again, at, at our church up in Lake Arrowhead. We lived on the, what we called like the warm side of the lake. The north side of the lake was the warm side of the lake. It was kind of more high deserty, and so uh, we had all these reptiles out there, right? Like there's lizards just all the time running around, and every once in a while we get a little snake. Well, I, I remember uh, we had this planter in front of our church right at the entrance, and there was ivy growing in the planter, and there was a little bench there where kids would often kind of run around, play on the bench while they were waiting for their parents to finish talking, right, and, and, and leave church. And so one day, after church had finished, everybody had gone home. It was just us on staff, and we were, we were locking up the building, and we came out, and right underneath the bench, right in the ivy, was a rattlesnake about this big, right? And being the, the mountain manly men that we were, I ran in utter fear, and um, our associate pastor literally grabbed a stick off of a tree stuck his head to the ground, reached down, grabbed that snake by the head, and just picked it up. And I'm like, wow, he's way tougher than me. Um, but he, it was my vote to kill that snake, right? Because it's playing where kids are at. If it feels comfortable there, we need to get rid of it. But he decided, no, it's okay, it didn't hurt anybody, so he went and let it go, right? Up in the, up in the hill, he just threw it up there. <laughs> Two weeks later, I'm, uh, I'm at church again, and there's a stairwell that comes down outside, and there's another planter kind of next to that stairwell, and uh, there's a family of about five people sitting there, mom, dad, three kids, all under the age of six. And I'm talking with them, just having a normal conversation. I say, bye, go to my car to grab something, come back. They had left, and as I head up the stairs, I hear something in the planter, look over, and here's a rattlesnake about this big in the planter, literally inches away from where this family was sitting. Their, their, their bottoms were hanging over the planter this far from that snake. Now this time... We just made an executive decision. That thing can't live. So instead of getting a stick, we got a shovel and we removed its head. Because that thing, feeling comfortable coming into these planters where people are hanging out, is going to kill a little kid. And so why would we keep this instrument of death in our church? Why would we keep that in our lives? Church, you don't keep something around that's going to kill you. You kill it. So what are the things in this passage that we're told to kill? Right? Here's the list. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Now, those are all words you've heard before, but what you might not notice is that each of these vices in this passage in particular are sexual in nature. Okay? These are all sexually oriented words. That word immorality, it's always associated as sexual immorality. It's the word porneia in Greek where we get our word pornography from. That's, it's sexual in nature. 
Paul uses it exclusively for sexual sin. Any sin that is against the will of God. Impurity, the next word, is almost always used in association with this pornea word, and it's always referring to something that's considered vile sexually. An act that's actual vile, it's vile in nature. Passion is a neutral word, but in this context, it's likely referring to this inappropriate, strong desire that's sexual in nature. And finally, greed, or another way of translating this word greed is covetousness, is also likely sexual in nature. Think of how this this word is used in the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, is the first thing it points out. So this list that Paul gives us initially, first thing out of his mind, are the things that we need to kill in our life are sins that are sexual in nature. Now, there's a lot to that, and we don't have time to get into all of it, but Sexual sin is one of the things that is destructive beyond what we can even imagine. The scripture talks about sexual sin as not just a sin against God, but it's a sin against God, against others, literally destroying and ruining families and relationships, and it's a sin against yourself. Okay? It is the trifecta of bad sin. Right? Now, we as a culture have accepted sexual sin as not bad, right? We have just treated it like it's an everyday occurrence. But Paul, when he says, what is the thing that needs to be killed in your life that is consistent with your old nature? Sexual sin is first on his list. We need to take that into account, church. Not to treat sexual sin lightly, but to put it to death quickly. And he also includes another list. He includes another list of things that should be removed, taken off, laid aside because they're inconsistent with our new nature. Look at verse 8. It says, put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech, and in verse 9, lying. It's not hard to see that these verses, these sins, are directed towards others, right? These sins are directed towards others. And there seems to be a progression with these sins. Uh, you might not notice, but there's a progression. So say, say, put yourself in this scenario. Someone offends you. They hurt you. They offend you. So you become angry. And because you hold on to that anger, you don't deal with that anger, you harbor it, and that anger turns immediately into wrath. Rage. Then it turns into malice, this ill will towards the other person. You actually desire them to be harmed in some way. Then you open your mouth and you slander them. You use your speech to cause harm and abuse the person, and you top it off with abusive or obscene speech, right? One of the definitions of abusive speech here is obscene expressions that would be used to flavor derogatory remarks, right? And of course, most of this happens behind the person's back. So when you actually come face to face with that person and they confront you about it or they they hear about it or you just see them casually say, oh, hey, how you doing? And they confront you and say, hey, I heard you were talking about me. No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. You lie to cover yourself in your sin. This is a progression that happens with us. Is this not the exact thing that happens on the roads of Southern California? This entire progression is played out perfectly clear. Look, someone cuts you off, right? You're immediately triggered. You're angry. You're mad. You can't forget about it because they're right there in front of you. So that anger quickly turns to rage, which is why we call it road rage, right? Wrath, another word for wrath is rage. You start tailing that person. 
And you start thinking in your mind these thoughts of malice. You desire them to crash, right? You want them to go off the side of the road. Then you open your mouth while you're driving a car. I can't believe, what a fill in the blank, right? And then as you drive by the person, you want to color that remark with a nice little gesture out the sunroof, right? Abusive speech, inappropriate speech. Finally, you get past the person and you realize, wow, it's actually my friend from work or it's my pastor. I had someone tell me last night that they had this experience with John Warehouse where they were really mad that someone cut them off and they were getting really wrathful and angry and about to give a gesture and they pulled beside and it was John Warehouse, our former pastor driving, right? So you pull in the church and they say, hey, was that you? No. (laughs) Definitely not me, right? So we lie. Paul is saying that those actions are inconsistent with the new nature. The the new nature doesn't cause disunity between people, doesn't cause harm between people. In fact, in Christ, it says in the last verse, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, there's a lot to be said in that verses, but what Jesus is really saying here, what Paul's saying is Jesus is the grand unifier. He brings all people together. And so we being in Christ, being of his nature, we put away actions that divide and separate us and cause harm to one another and seek to unify. Church, let's wrap this all up into one package here. You are made in God's image. You have inherent value and worth on that point alone. You're made for a purpose, to worship God and enjoy him forever. But you're broken. Your nature's been corrupted through the fall. By nature, you cannot help but sin and keep on sinning. But Jesus has made the ransom payment to God for your sin. The punishment of your sin has been paid in full. And you've been given a new nature in Christ and after his image and his likeness. But the old nature still exists simultaneously beside it. And as it says in verse 10, we must lay aside our old nature, our old self, with its evil practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the true knowledge of the image of the one who created him. We are being renewed and conformed to the image of Christ It is a continual renewal that happens that we must participate in. We continually renew our affections for Christ, wanting to spend time with him, thinking about the things we love about him, pointing them not inward but upward. We do the same with our mind. We fix our minds on Jesus, our thoughts on Jesus. We take every thought captive and submit it to the will of the Father. And we kill the practice of sin in our lives. We do not let the actions of our former way of life exist with the reality of our new life that has been won for us in Christ. It doesn't make sense to put on those clothes in that circumstance. We've been given a new life. We need to put on what is appropriate for that new life. So church, let us desire, let us think, let us live like people who have been made new because we are people who have been made new born again. Let us live consistently with that new nature. Let us submit our hearts, our minds, our wills to him who has redeemed us. Let us let him 
take us and break us and mold us and make us into something new. Amen? Father, we are amazed that you would, through your Son, make us into a new creation. That you would remove the corruption that is in our flesh because of our sin, Lord, and that you would make us new, able to live and fulfill our purpose with you once again. Lord, we ask that you would continue to renew us, help us to put off sin in our lives, help us to cast it aside, help us to fix our affections and our minds and our wills on you and you alone so that we may walk in the newness of life. Lord, we want to give you all the praise and glory, and we want to ask that you would empower us to do this through your Holy Spirit so that we can follow after you in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.